think of it if if the result today had been different and the WIP players had been allowed to go back on the tour. That would have been devastating to Monaghan and, and, the, and the PGA. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another Fire Drill podcast. A little bit of housekeeping real quick. We want to thank our sponsors, Parpoints, the best golf scoring app there is, and Seed Golf, awesome little ball company out of Europe. They allow us to do fun things like this. So tonight we're joined by um, Matt Janella and a very special guest in Peter Ginsburg, who's one of the preeminent legal minds in in the sports field he represented vj singh in his very successful lawsuit against the pga tour and he has represented a variety of tour players in different actions against the tour most of which no one ever heard of because of uh peter's skill keeping things quiet and getting things done behind the scenes so um peter thank you for being here and let's uh, let's just get right to it uh, i was at the courthouse today big verdict uh, what, what do you make of, of the tour's first first victory in what's no doubt going to be a long legal process? You know, I'm, I'm not terribly surprised. We've did several very confusing, um, two very confusing missteps, I thought. Liv and the players have really made this all about money. And money damages usually aren't sufficient to sustain a request for injunctive relief. They didn't make it much about pride of the game and the importance of, of the system, the, the point system. They also waited far too long to bring their request for injunctive relief and really created the emergency, like the judge said. So it wasn't terribly surprising. There's a lot of talk about, you know, it's a, for especially for a temporary restraining order, there's a high threshold to prove um, the damages and that that was that was tossed around by non-experts like myself. But c- can you explain to the listeners what Liv would have had to have done, uh, or the plaintiffs, I should say, three individuals would have had to done to to, to win this this uh, this TRO? Sure. Well, let me give you an example. Several years ago, I was representing a couple people from the Minnesota Vikings in a case that became known as, as the Star Caps case. And the commissioner tried to suspend them. And I'm not going to go into all of the details, but for for something that they should not have been the subject of a suspension. And we went into court in Minnesota to ask for injunctive relief. We didn't argue about the money loss. And we didn't argue about uh, policies at the NFL. Instead, our, our argument was based on reputation and the pride of playing the game and how much it would tarnish their reputations. Being hurt in that way is um, an emergency. It it can't be remedied by winning later on, um, as opposed to simply asking for money damages when you can always be compensated retroactively. So it has to be something um, more personal and frankly more important than, than simply um, asking for money. I mean, I thought the um, 
you know, the, uh, the, the plaintiff's lawyer, I mean, he, he kept make, trying to make the case that the, the FedEx Cup was now the avenue to get into the major championships for these players, if they could they get in the top 30, that it's, it's just a great platform for building their brand. And he tried to make that argument a little bit, but um, the judge didn't seem too impressed. You know, I mean, I guess from, from your perspective, how how tall a mountain was was this for for the plaintiffs to actually climb? I mean, it seemed like they, you know, if you just look at it, the fact that they left the tour, now they're trying to get get back onto the tour. Uh, it was it was going to be an uphill battle, but how how much uh, in in your in your minds, how how long were the odds against them before before this even began? I think the way this is played out, it looks like a money grab, and. And that's, that's what the judge decided. Yeah. If they had focused from the beginning you know, about the importance of the FedEx Cup and the importance of the exposure and the meaning to the game, I think they would have been far better off. But the people who are the spokespeople for WIV um, are gonna, aren't the most attractive candidates to be making that, that claim. <laughs> well said. Matt, what were you going to say? No, I, I mean, I, I, I felt like we should probably just go back for a second. For me, from the outside, not being in the courtroom, Alan, you were there. Peter, you've been in there, you know, a gajillion times, I'm sure. Uh, I've listened to your interview on the Stripe Show podcast with Travis Fulton, and I thought it was very informative. But before we get a little, you know, even in more depth, I just I think a little bit of color in terms of what the courtroom looked like, I think would be fascinating yeah, it was. Um, it's just a gift from the content gods that somehow Northern California was chosen as the venue, and I can just drive up there. It's in San Jose; it's about an hour and a half away, and so um, I blew up there. I kind of got there a little bit late, and I was rushing. But walking into the courtroom, it's such a, a regal, formal setting, and in this chaotic political moment where it seems like every institution is under attack. And and the rule of law is always seems to be in question. It, I it was neat for me as someone who is you know rarely in a courtroom just to see it play out and the formality of everyone rises for the judge and all the lawyers in their beautiful Italian suits you know that are glistening in the lighting. Clearly, those suits cost more than um, some of the people's cars in the parking lot. And um, just the the decorum and the respect that the lawyers showed for the judge. And the whole process, it was it was kind of neat to be there, honestly. And um, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And, you know, I, I knew nothing about Judge Freeman coming in. Um, uh, I saw in Jin, she's a 33 handicap. She pl does play the game. But um, uh, I, th I thought she was really good. I mean, she had she had these these lawyers on their toes. And, um, you know, the few times I burst out laughing, some things were said, I kind of looked around like, oh, shoot, sorry. It reminded me of being like, you know, around a green at Augusta National and someone whispers something funny to you and you're trying to hold it in. Like, are you allowed to laugh? I don't even know what the rules are, but um, there was there was some levity. And, um, you know, I, I really thought both sides did a good job in their arguments. You know, the, um, the, the plaintiffs, they made some headway. They did explain the timeline a little bit, uh, Peter White. All these things had to happen behind the scenes before they could f bring their suit. And the judge found that persuasive because she was dubious to begin with. Right. I thought um, I thought the tour lawyers um, really made made some headway in in 
explaining how how much these guys knew what they were getting themselves into and how much money they had taken. And that was kind of a little mini courtroom drama because the judge had access to the contract. So she knows the actual numbers and the lawyers know the numbers. They didn't want to say it out loud. And a couple of times the different lawyers like came up right to the edge and almost said it. And you're like on the precipice of some juicy revelation. They pulled themselves back and you know, it was, I could see people like me and the other, there's two other reports are kind of leaning forward, like, Ooh. And, um, you know, the, uh, the plaintiff lawyer let slip at one point that the live earnings are counting against the advance that some of these players got. He didn't go into any more detail, but that was a little mini bombshell. That was interesting. That was um, very interesting. That was interesting. And at the same time, um, you know, that, that can be explained in different ways. Every contract's different and some things are, are front-loaded and some have it on the back end. So two things can be true at, at once where you win the tournament, they send you a check, but what that means on the back end of your deal, who knows? But when, when that happened, you know, I was looking around and some other guys were looking around. We made eye contact like, oh, that's juicy. You know, it was just like funny little moments like that. It was, um, and then of course the, the judge takes his 15 minute break and and leave, and so now everyone's in the hallway buzzing about what's going to happen and trying to bird dog the lawyers. And, and then you go back in the courtroom and you're just waiting for it to come in. And like, it really felt like uh, the, the, the emotion of it all was fun. I mean, you, you've been down that road many times, but when, when you're one of those lawyers and you're waiting for the, the judge to come in and render their verdict, like, what does it feel like on the inside for you? Not quite as bad as when you're waiting for a jury to come back. With it. <laughs> yeah, but pretty close. What was the rationalization that the lib attorneys gave for why they waited so long? That um, there was there was all these different protocols. They they had they got suspended. They had to do, they had to appeal. The appeal had to be heard. Um, the tour uh, did X. They had to do Y. That led to Z. And um, I have it in some of my notes, but it was. You know, this sort of this, this process that had to play out behind the scenes, and the um, they, the lawyer did a good job of laying it out. The tour pushed back a little bit, but ultimately, in her closing remarks, the judge <clears throat> did nod towards the um, the plaintiff's lawyer and said, "You know, um, I, I, I do agree that this was about as timely as it could have been uh, filed this lawsuit." And so, so they they did a good job explaining that, but you know, really. For, for all the different complicated factors that went into this, it, it just came down to um, proving that, you know, irreparable harm would be, be done to the plaintiffs. And because they'd already gotten so much money from Live Golf, they can keep making money. They have other ways to play play their way into the majors, theoretically. Um, the judge ruled against them. But I thought it was – I thought the lawyers kind of argued to a draw and that the, the deck was always stacked towards, um, towards a tour on this particular issue. So – uh, it was it was an interesting uh, interesting kind of uh, repartee. Well, I'm glad that the uh, justice justice system worked. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Matt. Peter, I, I one thing I'm I'm curious about is 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 your sense that that this is all just a part of the long form process? This literally needed to play out. Uh, not very surprising that these particular players. Uh, lost this this battle given the, the the case they presented and when they presented it and how they presented it and and yet this will be all part of what's going to be the long the long narrative arc of of kind of the antitrust uh you know battle i i think that's right i mean think of it if if the result today had been different 
and the way players have been allowed to go back on the tour. That would have been devastating to Monaghan in, in, the, in the PGA. But I think it's, you know, I think the question of whether there's an antitrust violation is a closer call and far more complicated and will take a while to play out. You, you said that there are two aspects of, of antitrust law, monopoly and conspiracy. And monopoly is obviously one that seems to be the, the dark shadow looming over the PGA Tour. Um, how, how, given, given the, the fact that it feels like they've been monopolistic and, and gotten away with it for a long period of time, how is there a way that they that they win the antitrust case? Well, you know, let, let me let me say I think anyone who tells you how this is going to play out and who's going to win is um, being overly confident in his or her own abilities. I think it's they are really very complicated issue. Um, monopolies can happen because of nefarious or purposeful um, actions. And monopolies can happen because of market forces and um, events that are not necessarily uh, indicative of antitrust violations. And there are certain aspects of the golf world with points and playing into tournaments and things that can have a almost what you would refer to as a monopolistic effect, but really simply as a way to strengthen um, the appeal of the PGA. There are, you know, media rights and, and media contracts which are more or less valuable depending on the um, sort of the sanctity of the game. And the higher the contracts are, the, the, the more monopolistic the game is because the purses are higher, so the incentive to play is higher. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's anti-competitive. It could just, it could mean just the opposite. You know, I I think that if the P, the PGA would do well for itself, if it focuses on some of the issues um, involving the politics, the, um, the the sort of psychological aspects of the game, and whether the players themselves feel like the game will be cheated and they'll be cheated. If people from Live, for instance, are allowed to sort of make their way into the tournaments without having to go through the same rigorous, um, you know, rigorous uh, schedule and, and rigorous standards that they have to go through. It, it might be, you know, it might be interesting if this took the turn so it was less monetized, to use the word, I think it was used in the courtroom today, and more focused on what the effect of the PGA would be to um, not to fight against the Saudi Arabian government and the politics of that. It may be that the PGA ought to be taking a more political stand. Um, I mean, certainly, you're not going to see an awful lot of uh, basketball players going over to Russia to play basketball. There, there, I mean, there's certain political undercurrents that might be um, more attractive and make this less of a um, forensic battle over uh, monopoly 
So, you know, I do, I think, think this is just the beginning. Well, and that was interesting because in, in some ways this today's hearing transcended the moment because whether or not these three players who, who let's be honest, are not stars in the game, we're going to get to play in the FedEx Cup. I don't think anyone was that emotionally invested in, in that particular question, other than the fact it was just this was the first battle. But the larger antitrust case is what really matters. And so the tour tipped its hand a little bit in its defense when their lawyer you know, put up a slide that showed the, the player impact program from last year and that five of the, the top 10 are now playing on, on the live tour. And they had some stats about the three events that live has played um, how many elite players they had in the field versus the PJ tour event that same week. And it was, it was stacked in the direction of live. And the, you know, the, the lawyer basically said something to the effect, like, I'm sorry to say, but the competition is fierce. And so the tour is, is in this funny position of, now they haven't wanted to acknowledge live publicly, but now in the court of law, they're saying, Hey, these guys are kicking ass and they're a real threat. We, we can't be a monopoly because they're taking all our players and they got better players than we do. And so they're kind of, it's a little dance between the public relations you get in the, in Jay Monahan's press conferences. And then the, the legal argument is, is totally contrary to that. So I thought that was an interesting part of today. The tour on some level conceding defeat to to live, which then might end up biting them when it comes to the battle of world golf rankings and whether or not that you know whether or not live deserves the rankings and whether or not live can toggle their competitive you know forum to be four rounds instead of three that that could end up being being used against them. Yes or no? I, I kind of doubt that the world rankings are PGA focused clearly, and live can have its own ranking system. But I think that as long as the PGA doesn't conspire with the majors, and as long as live is you know, viable, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to prove anti-competitive behavior. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying, Matt, is interesting because there's there's the and both both entities, the tour and live, are also battling in the court of public opinion, which is different than a court of law, and so. Um, it, it, it is, there's a little dance going on, which I found intriguing. And even on the point of, um, you know, th this is this is different, but th this, it looked like it was going to be a, a key point in the ruling was whether or not the, the commissioner has the absolute power when, when someone is suspended for any reason that they can like make them sit out tournaments. Because in one regulation, Peter said, that when, when you're on appeal, you're you're allowed to keep playing. But then there's another bylaw that said, well, the, the tour, the commissioner at his discretion, essentially, can even someone who's on appeal, he can bar from playing because just their very presence could be so inflammatory. The lawyer used kind of a weird example, like if a guy had hate speech on his hat, that's not going to happen. But, you know, the idea that these live golfers would show up wearing live gear at at, a, at one of the PJ Tour flagship events um, was kind of a fun thought exercise. And, um, you know, I, I think the tour dodged a bullet there because the, the judge was not overly impressed by the language in, in these regulations. But it, it does speak to a larger question that, that imbues this whole debate is how much power does the commissioner have to set policy? Does he work for the players or do the players work for him? And I know you've jousted with Tim Fincham and with Jay Monahan. And I, I want to get your opinion on the unique role of, of the PJ Tour commissioner to set policy and to make unilateral decisions. 
what is their role in the, when it comes to dealing with their own membership? To say, for, for Monaghan to say that he works for the players is farcical. I mean, Monaghan, Monaghan runs the PGA. And if the PGA is successful, the players make more money. So in that very simplistic way, he could, he can, without breaking, you know, laughing out loud, make that claim. But Monaghan has really almost unfettered power in, 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 in many ways. He has greater power than commissioners of other leagues because since the players are independent contractors and there's no union representing the players, and Monaghan doesn't have the anti the 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 um, the anti competition waiver uh, or exemption that some of the other commissioners have. But on the other hand, he doesn't have any um, group fighting against him. And golfers, by their nature, are not a particularly cohesive group. They don't really. They have never historically. Um, joined together to fight for any particular principles, as far as I know. And so, in that respect, Monaghan is um, more can be more draconian than some of the other sports commissioners. Peter, if Phil Mickelson had called you a year and a half ago and said, "Look, I've got some gripes. I got some issues." I'm doing these side games. They're charging me a million bucks. I don't have control over my brand, my ability to market my brand. We don't have a collective bargaining agreement within the structure of the PGA Tour, unlike all the other sports. Peter, I want you to help me form uh, a group of players to take on the PGA Tour. I mean, is that, would that have been a better System, a, a, a way of going about this than going out and forming a breakaway tour with Saudi Arabia and and undermining sort of the, like if Mickelson had called you a long time ago and sort of started fresh, would would you have taken the case and do you think you would have had a better case than than what and then the way this is all unfolded? Oh, well, let me answer the first question um, first. I've had that conversation with some of the players. And I've tried to make that point. But golfers are very independent independent uh, people. And it was very hard to convince a core group of them to organize, to sort of wrestle some of the control from the commissioner and to institute um, programs that are fair to the individual players. I think, you know, your second question is whether it would be better. And I guess that depends on what their goals are. If their goals are to make more money, I think that the live tour probably is better for Mickelson than if he had um, formed a unit to, to fight the, the, the PGA and to better protect the players' rights. And if that's his priority, that's his priority. For sure. I think if you could ever organize the members to actually um, act together for a greater good, it could make the game a lot better. It could um, 
make his or procedural protections and other safeguards much stronger for the players. Like I said, if, if all Mifflin really cares about is the money, he probably went about it in the way that is better for Mifflin. Now, I'm not sure that he particularly cares about the game as much as he cares about himself. At least that's sort of just my opinion from watching him and listening to him over the years. Interesting. Um, how, how much weight should the this decision carry? You know, if you're, if you're a fan and you're trying to make sense of all this, it's like, okay, the, the tour is going to declare victory. Um, and they've, I've already, my inbox, I'm already getting statements and, uh, from the tour and, and, you know, they're, they're trumpeting this like a, a major political victory, but in, in the larger scheme, can, can you give us some context to what this, this really means? You know, like I said before, I really do think this is just the first step. And I think at this point, the PGA ought to uh, sort of step back and think about their overall strategy and whether eliciting you know, members' views on this and thinking about some of the um, political positions that can be taken um, it w- would benefit them in the long run. I think it's really, it is the first step and it's too early to tell how this is going to play out. I mean, to give people some idea of how long this process is going to be, at the end of the hearing, <clears throat> excuse me, the judge laid out a tentative timeline, and she set September of 2023 as the, the antitrust trial date. So that's 13 months. And she was kind of apologized. I like, said, hey, I know this is a really compressed timeline. You guys are going to have to work really hard. And the lawyer's like, oh, boy, <clears throat> 13 months is all we have. Like, you know, I don't know what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow. So it's funny to think about <laughs> so far in the future. But um, <clears throat> I know these are complicated things. and. Um, over the next 13 months, if, if there's no settlement and, and both sides get dug in, how many hearings and how many public events could we expect that will uh, train a spotlight on, on the ongoing process? Well, part of it depends on whether everyone plays nicely or not, because the first battle will be over discovery and production of documents and making people available for depositions. And, you know, lawyers can be lawyers. And so they either decide to work together or they'll have one dispute after another and the judge will have to get involved in the magistrate more likely. Um, at some point, probably sooner than later, there'll be the first iteration of legal motions, probably motions to dismiss like the PGA. I'm claiming that they can't, they live, can't make out an antitrust violation. Um, so there'll be, there'll be motion practice. You know, I, the same lawyers who represent the PGA, uh, in this case, is represented uh, the PGA in Singh's case. And, you know, we were in court a lot, and they were made a lot of motions. It's just sort of the way they play the game. And sometimes it's effective, and sometimes it's counterproductive. Sometimes the judge is intrigued, and sometimes the judge just gets angry. But if you like going to court, it's a good show for you. <laughs> and it's um, it's edifying. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. And the strategies will become more and more evident as that process goes on. 
And then once they go through discovery, there'll be a second round, at least a second round of motion practice and hearings on those motions. And ultimately, maybe they'll get to trial. But 13 months is not much time to put together a case like this. That's amazing. I'm just thinking of all the billable hours because I counted up the tour lawyers in the courtroom. There was 12 of them and they had their little rolling suitcases full of stuff. Some dude had like four huge boxes on a dolly. <laughs> like they came to Sopranos. They came heavy and they were, they were ready. And oh, yeah. it was, yeah. it was an impressive uh, mobilization of manpower. <laughs> like, um, I don't I was I was amazed, and it seemed like every time the their lawyer had a thought, someone would scurry over and hand him a document and run back. It was like watching a ball boy at the U.S. Open tennis, you know. Like the um, the choreography was impressive. So um, clearly, the you know the tour sees this as a, a threat to its very survival, and they're going to throw uh, every resource necessary to to defend themselves. And uh, it, it was it was quite a display, honestly. Oh yeah. And, uh, and look, the, the firm's representing, the tour have represented the PGA for a long time. So they, they, know, they, know these, they, they know the association, they know the players, and they'll, they'll do a good job. You know, I, I think that they have to be careful not to sort of necessarily follow the old traditional playbook because it's going to be a hard case. I... I I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all plays out. Obviously, this is this is fascinating stuff. I really love your perspective and and uh, especially given your background and your history. So I'm, I really appreciate you you spending time with us and and uh, and informing us. And uh, hopefully, we can have you on again in the future. It'd be great anytime. It's fantastic stuff. Good to talk to you too. I mean. My grandma really wanted me to go to law school, and uh, I'm now regretting it because who knew that this was going to take such a turn? I mean, uh, but uh, anyway, um, Peter. My, my grandmother wanted me to play tennis. I, I was hoping you'd say that your grandma wanted you to be a sports writer, you know, and we, we could have. Anyway, um, we could have swapped. Yeah, swapped our letters. We could have swapped. <laughs> Not a horrible idea. Um, all right. Well, this, that was Peter Ginsburg. Um, Preeminent lawyer, thank you for your thoughts. Matt, uh, Janella, as always, uh, I'm Alan Schiffnuck. This is the, the end of this fire drill, but we know there's going to be many more. We'll, uh, we'll keep doing these as events warrant. You know, there was a big news break about Cam Smith uh, joining Live, which is not official yet, but it seems very close. Um, uh, anecdotally, after the tour championship, other players are expected to jump. So, uh, this story will continue to evolve and we will keep uh, keep talking about it and, and trying to educate and entertain all the listeners out there. So thanks for thanks for being here. Thanks to Peter and Matt. This is Alan Shipnick, and um, that's the end. I bet big and I played to win. Made a fortune when my ship came in. I ran the table, never thought I could fall. Then the winter time hit me like a cannonball. And now I can't shake this losing streak. Every road I take is a dead end street. I got thoughts in my head, can't get them out. Trying not to think what I'm thinking about. I got thoughts in my head. 
Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.